Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, March the 23rd. Well, some brutal weather. We're not going to let that distract us, and we're going to keep things high energy. We're really glad you've downloaded us and are listening. Quadwo, Kira Manting. Oh, my gosh, we got him. The uh, ICU doctor from our nation's capital in Ottawa. He hasn't done many chats lately. He's got his own podcast. He doesn't need to talk to us, but he wants to, and that's the big thing. We will chat with him about where COVID is going, where it's been in the last few months with Omicron, and how we move forward one step at a time. Yes, we'll talk masks. We'll talk booster shots. We'll talk all of it with Quadwo. So a great, this is one of the best interviews we've done, best conversations, rather, we've done uh, with uh, somebody who's seeing patients on a regular basis. You know we have our favorites. You know we want, you know, straight data and and to ignore the fear and the, uh, you know, keeping people on high panic alert for 25 months, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are. We don't do that here with Quadwo. Alex Brown, our guest as well, uh, as we'll talk about uh, mask mandates, the potential impact that some of COVID restrictions are going to have potentially on the provincial election as well. That plus Chatterbox. Chatterbox was great. Kelly Cotrera and Mike Drolet join us for that. So check it out. The Toronto Today podcast starts now. Let me start here. I got a couple amazing pieces of audio from the United States uh, to do. Um, one is from the Supreme Court hearing. One is from that, and the other is uh, a senator in Indiana. Yeah, Indiana. You know, where they won't sell gay couples cakes. Um, rather remarkable stuff. Like, y- you won't know what year you're in when you a- actually hear either of these pieces of audio. And I do think people on the left will devour, and they have been, one of the pieces of audio. And people on the right will dev- devour the other piece of audio. And I'm sort of incredulous, in a way, about both pieces of audio. So we'll get there in just a little bit. Let me start here with the reaction, the further reaction from yesterday's just bombshell story. I think there's no other way to describe it than that. And that's the alliance between Justin Trudeau and uh, Jugmeet Singh, the liberals and NDP combining. Now, um, I heard it described yesterday by Candace Bergen as a power grab. Okay, yes, but but obviously politicians grab power. That's going to happen on a frequent basis. Trudeau gets Singh's seats, in essence, jumps up to 185 seats, and now there's no stress about budgets. There's no stress about no confidence votes. Um, We know that the NDP was able to do this to some extent, and they were doing it a couple different times in our pandemic era here. There was hemming, and there was even hawing. Eh, Sometimes more hemming, but there was both those things, hemming and hawing from the NDP. I don't know. Will we support this? Will we trigger an election? Who's to say? And then they always vote with them. And now at least, now we're out in the open. Like this is like declaring a relationship as opposed to just having one. Um, and, And many times, People in the public eye uh, do that on a regular basis. They don't declare their relationship until they're well deep down the road. Your Ben Afflecks of the world, your Hugh Grants of the world, they sort of, you know, the tap Sean Penn, they're going to, people are going to get followed around, right? And this is just them. Well, now they're out. Now they're not pretending they don't know each other. Now they're holding hands. Now they're out there. And speaking of hand holding, don't worry. Justin Trudeau's in Brussels, Belgium by himself. He didn't bring Jugmeet Singh with him. Singh's got a little kid. He's a, Brussels is a beautiful city. 
this is the time and place to go to Brussels. But uh, Justin Trudeau's there on his own in Europe. In fact, he's there right now, and it's uh, past lunchtime in, in Brussels this morning. And more on that in a little bit as Trudeau's there, Biden's there. Um, obviously, other members of the G7, Emmanuel Macron from France, uh, will be there uh, landing in a couple hours from now. But I, I get the criticism from the conservatives, and I'm still going to maintain that this is bad news for them. I know there's been a bit of a good news, you know, paint brush go up and down the wall here saying, well, what's the problem with this? It gives us a chance to get Canada to know our leader. And sometimes not that that's not the best thing. Sometimes you don't need that. Brian Mulroney was federal leader for the conservative party of uh, for the progressive conservative party uh, in 1983, summer of 1983. He was sitting on top of a pile of seats along with fellow MPs by the fall of 1984. He'd only been leader 14 months. Jean Chrétien was not leader forever in a day. We knew who he was. He ran against John Turner. Tried to, he tried to win in 1984. He would have been that interim prime minister that probably got slaughtered by Brian Mulroney in the 1984 election. Sometimes, right, life business, your business, mine, sports, entertainment, timing's everything. It was probably great that Jean Chrétien didn't win in 1984 because I don't know that he's prime minister for for almost 10 over just over 10 years by the time 1993 comes around before he acquiesces and gives way to Paul Martin. But I think the conservatives needed to move quickly here. Why? There's no settling. What if this is good? What and if anything, this could be costly for the NDP, and I'll explain that in a moment. But I think this was the time to strike now. I'd also bring up something I hadn't thought of yesterday with the transition from Andrew Shear to Aaron O'Toole to whoever comes next. For Jean Charest, I never thought about the age factor before, but I do think it matters. Whether he'll say so or not, people are going to wonder. Here's a politician that will be 64 years old in the summer. In the summer, as they're out there. Now, that doesn't mean he can't run for the leadership. We're not the United States where there's potential. I mean, you know that there's potential for two 80-year-olds to be the nominees of the party in uh, 2024. You do realize that's a possibility. There's not a lot of oomph around Kamala Harris right now, okay? I know that Democrats are worried about where Joe Biden is at in a lot of different contexts, okay? Suffice to say. But Jean Charest at 64, does he want to be opposition leader for the uh, CPC until the summer of 2025? That's probably not what he signed up for. He signed up for a quick campaign this summer. Maybe, just maybe, bring the party back more towards the middle. And he seems to be the guy that scares Justin Trudeau. That's what you're hearing. That's what you're seeing in the polling as well. That he'd do better in Ontario than Pierre Polyev. And though Polyev is way out in front in terms of polls, and we've yet to see the impact of Patrick Brown in the race. Don't dismiss that. Brown can sign people up. Brown can mobilize. Brown's really well known in the GTA. Many look to Brown and say, regardless of what you think of how he resigned, not the how, not the why, but the how, as a Ontario uh, PC leader and the man who would have been premier quite patently and obviously, regardless of what you think, it's about the now. And is Brown young enough, motivated enough, mobilized enough, has shone through the pandemic as a real leader amongst mayors and men and women? And can that make an impact in Ontario? 
You have to have Ontario seats. You've got to have 15 to 18 red seats turn blue. You have to have that. If Sheree can't do that in Ontario, if Polyev can't do that in Ontario, we're just we're talking from one ear and out the other. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I and it doesn't even matter if Justin Trudeau runs again, if the Liberals are capable of grabbing an, another minority government and the NDP are still alongside. Because one political honk, if you will, brought this up to me yesterday. Why won't this just continue? This makes the this gives the NDP a seat at the table. They've got a deal in their hand. What are the conservatives having theirs? Nothing right now because they're sitting on the outside. Being the opposition party doesn't mean much when the NDP have, in essence, crossed over without physically crossing over and created a majority government. It's a really interesting scenario here. Here's my thought quickly on what it means for the provincial election. It's bad news for Stephen Del Duca. It's worse news for Andrea Horvath. Because we tend to do this. We don't tend to vote along party stripes, federally and provincially in Ontario. If you're going to vote for Mike Harris, you're cool with Jean Chrétien. If you're going to vote for Brian Mulroney, you're perfectly happy, or rather Stephen Harper, you're perfectly happy with Dalton McGuinty. Brian Mulroney was elected with a landslide majority. He cleaned out Ontario in the fall of 1988. I remember really well. I wasn't old enough to vote. Uh, But by the time I was old enough to vote, Bob Ray became the premier. If I told you the night that Brian Mulroney is painting Ontario and Canada blue a second straight time, a second straight decisive majority government in 1988, and I tell you that the NDP are going to rule the province with the majority government two years later, you'd never have believed it. I would have never believed it. But these things do happen. So not the best of news because it's easy peasy for Doug Ford to say, my friends, Look at the unholy alliance, the coalition. It's not really a coalition. It doesn't matter. I'm going to say it is anyway. Look at the coalition government. Do you want that here with Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath? You better give me a majority back. He didn't have to say that part out loud. You never know. He might. (laughs) But that's what the conservatives want. And this is very bad news for Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, even if the consideration was there that there'd be some form of coalition, even if they would do in uh, 2022. What was done in 1985 with Frank Miller uh, running the Conservative Party and Bob Ray in the NDP and David Peterson calling each other up? They couldn't text each other then and saying, whispering, whispering, let's combine our seats and let's take over here. We'll give you lots of wiggle room. We'll give you lots of autonomy. A lot of the things in the Bob Ray NDP, uh, you know, gift bag, they're yours. Just get me elected. Just put me in power. And it got David Peterson a majority government two years later. Let me get you to this audio really quick. I found this (laughs) unbelievable. Uh, An Indiana senator last night, uh, Mike Braun, says the Supreme Court, since we're debating the um, merits of uh, a new Supreme Court nominee and more on that in a second, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana uh, made comments saying interracial marriage rulings interracial marriage rulings should have been left to the states. Yeah. Who doesn't love the idea of getting married in Michigan, crossing that border in Toledo, Ohio, and then being like, okay, I guess we're not married for a little while now. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What, who, when he was questioned yesterday during a media call and said the Supreme court was wrong (laughs) to legalize interracial marriage. Here's the clip. So you would be okay with the Supreme Court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states? 
Yes, I think that that's something that uh, if you're not wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on issues like that, uh, you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it, too. I think that's hypocritical. What about Griswold versus Connecticut? Do well, you, you can list a whole host of issues when it comes down to whatever they are. Uh, I'm going to say that they're not going to all make you happy uh, within a given state, but that we're better off having states manifest their points of view rather than homogenizing it across the country as Roe versus Wade did. Okay. Wow. It's 2022. I know you think it's 1922, but we wouldn't be on the radio if that was the case, or I'd sound a lot more old-timey than I actually do. Now let me give you this clip from the nominee herself, Katanji Brown-Jackson. She was quizzed by 22 members of the uh, of the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday, trying to determine if she's got the fortitude and the qualifications to be the next Supreme Court justice. All this, by the way, while Clarence Thomas is still sick with flu in hospital. He's 80 years old now, and there was an awful lot of controversy about him, wasn't there, Um, when George Herbert Walker Bush appointed him in 1990. We'd watch those. We were watching the confirmation hearings in university uh, together, me and my roommates. Katanji Brown Jackson was asked by a senator, and it's tricky here. Can you define what a woman is? Ooh, um, I would have wanted a, a, a better answer or any answer, and she didn't give one. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N- not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments, and I look at the law, and I decide. So I'm not... The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. Yeah, see, I don't think that. I I don't think that. I don't think we're talking about progressive education. Some will use that as an argument, but I would say you need an answer here. Webster's defines a woman as an adult female person. You don't have to be a biologist, and you don't even have to talk about biology. It's often said about love. If you think you're in love, you are. If you're questioning it, you're not. If you identify as a woman biologically or by belief, then you are a woman. You are an adult female person, according to Webster. Let that out. Say that. But you can't say that you can't define it because you're not a biologist. I'm not a biologist. You're not a biologist. Listening. Well, you might be. And you can define what a woman is. We got to stop walking on eggshells about this stuff. We got to have real and raw conversations about that stuff. A woman It can be defined as an adult female person. And if you think that's more than just plain biology, you can say that. We can have that discussion. We would do that for a man. Not a great answer. Not in the least yesterday. It's not going to cost her her confirmation, but it tells you the slippery political, sociopolitical landscape we live in right now. We are so happy to have our next guest in. I found this guy to be a shining light. He does not do much radio and certainly doesn't do much anymore, but he chose our show uh, to make a stop at. He uh, is the head of an ICU unit in our nation's capital in Ottawa. He hosts the Quadcast. 
He is Quadwo Kiramanting. Dr. K, thank you very much for making the time. You know, I, I, we could go back, talk about pandemic playbooks. There's still some people operating from the April 2020, May 2020 hide under the couch playbook. I want to talk about Omicron and what you saw in your ICU with Omicron just just blowing through our population December and January. Let's start there. Yeah, it was it's a, it was a bit of a unique one. Like we did see like we we got to hear about it before it came, right? We got to hear about what's happening in South Africa and so forth. And what we did see in the ICU is the ones that ended up getting really sick were really vulnerable like either unvaccinated with multiple comorbidities, including, you know, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, or they had a very poor immune system because of their, you know, they're on, they're an organ transplant recipient. So they have to be on all those uh, medications to suppress their immune system. And those that did come in that, you know, not to the same volume of, of what we saw before, but those that came in were really sick actually because of mm-hmm. how, how uh, suppressed their immune system were, but we weren't seeing, you know, in the, for example, in the, in the third wave, you would see a significant amount of, you know, people in the thirties, forties, fifties that, you know, did, didn't have like only had poor metabolic health, like maybe just some obesity uh, type two diabetes and weren't vaccinated. And so, you know, th- th- that was a different beast for sure compared to this fifth wave. And what you would see on, on the hospital wards was a lot of about half of them were incidental. So they would come in with, you know, a hip replacement, needing a hip replacement or their appendix removed and wouldn't necessarily, they weren't sick from their COVID, but swap positive. So it was really a different challenge you know we had to figure out ways how to staff the hospital Mm -hmm. because we were so many of us were swabbing positive you know do we keep a covid positive patients despite their symptoms in one area do we allow them to stay on their own ward and and so it just really produced some like logistics and staffing problems but luckily um like i said we're on the better side of this at this time dr quadro kira manting our guest on toronto today on 640 toronto we also had a newer conversations about masks. And I remember Dr. Leona Wen on CNN, and it was rather famous when she did it. And she said, this cloth thing is not going to cut it. Um, she called them, in essence, facial decorations. And she'd been very uh, aggressive about, uh, and, and many of us were, who might have supported uh, vaccine mandates at, at a point in time. Certainly, uh, we all wanted to be around vaccinated people more. How could we not uh, all throughout spring and summer and fall of 2021? Mm. What did that statement about cloth masks do did it did it make other people more aware uh, of of n95s the people that you referenced the people that probably needed uh, more protection maybe than a younger person or or a person of of good health you know it is one of these things greg like covid we learned we had to be flexible we had to learn on the go with so many ways and you know the 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 trial that a lot of us refer to is that bangladesh uh, randomized controlled trial where where masks where cloth masks weren't uh, weren't as as effective as one thought, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is where you get a chance to pivot, you know. You realize, like, hey, you know, like my my mom. I think of my mom who's got uh, rheumatoid arthritis. You know, if I'm serious about protecting her, I want to make sure she has a high quality mask on top of getting making sure she's vaccinated well. On top of also being aware of the therapeutic options that she that she has. And I think. Honestly, Greg, one of the things that I wish we didn't do in, in terms of the pandemic is really politicize this bad boy, because I think 
if we had that honest dialogue about so many aspects of this thing and not trying to be so black and white, so, you know, tribalistic, we'd be this much further ahead. Honestly, I think we'd be in a much better spot when it came to our COVID response because saying, you know, the cloth masks aren't as effective as we hoped they were, like, that shouldn't be controversial. Like, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, an area where people are getting their backs up. Like, we just, like, let's be honest. Let's let's be honest so we could pivot and affect more lives. And so, uh, you know, I, I think this is one of the sins overall when we look back at this, uh, Greg, that I uh, wish we would have been a bit more um, strategic and, and honest. Well, it's also, you know, we go to our GP and we want that honesty. Like if we, if we went in for a checkup and, and I was, um, I'll, I'll, I'll push the number up more than what, what she usually tells me. Let's say she says, Greg, you need to lose 20 pounds, not eight or 10, but 20, you need to lose 20 pounds. You're, you're a little on the unhealthy. So you, you need to cut out some bad habits. I want that. I want that information. And I think we, we did healthcare, especially with a, a you know, a fatal, uh, you know, traveling fast disease we did sort of one size fits all healthcare and and we didn't make it clear and i don't know why we didn't about who is who was more susceptible but you saw the patients we saw if you dig enough you see the demographics the danger areas really stuck to the people in the first few months that we were most worried about our older people our vulnerable people then eventually our unvaccinated people and people with multiple comorbidities And if I was one of those people, older people or multiple comorbidities, tell me the truth. Tell me I'm at more risk than my 20 year old, you know, granddaughter in in university. Tell me if I've if I'm, you know, a recent, you know, transplant patient or tell me if I've if I've got um, multiple comorbidities that I'm that I'm more at risk than my son or daughter is. I want to know those things. I I don't know that we did a good job on that. A hundred percent. And the reason why I think like to piggyback on what you're saying is because the message gets distorted when you don't when you don't get to t- tell people about what their risks are like i'll give you an example we when we were given out started the booster campaign you know it was clear that our older population would benefit the most like i'll tell you right now as you alluded to covid discriminates it absolutely yeah. older comorbidities as you said uh, um, poor immune system and and so to me when i remember talking to a guy who was 75 years old this was in and around january and he's like i'm, I'm still waiting to get my booster i gotta wait another couple of weeks because of the, the appointment because we opened it up to 18 year olds and above and so some 18 year old kid who's got you know they're crafty with booking their thing has already got their their their, their booster and i'm like there's no way we sh- that 75 year old guy shouldn't uh, should be getting the booster ahead or shouldn't be getting the booster ahead of that 18 year old like we could be so much more strategic and and, and i just to me as you said like it 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 clouds the picture it, it it distracts and in so many ways we we needed to really emphasize those vulnerable groups and and let them know and and you know in some places we did okay like i'll give an example uh, in ottawa when it was clear that multi-generational homes, racialized mm. communities were, were, were at high risk. Um, you know, we, we brought vaccines to those neighborhoods, you know, mobile units to those neighborhoods. Like this is the kind of stuff that we needed to do more in my opinion. 
but man, like this is that you like know your risk. Like really, I think this was something that we could have done a better job at. And and once again, I think we would be in a better spot overall if we were having those honest discussions. I think you nailed it. I think we were. I think we were at boosters for seventy five plus. It might have only even been eighty plus because my parents are in their mid seventies. About two weeks before Christmas, and then instead of going, uh, Doctor Kiramanting. 35 plus 40 plus I was yelling that on the radio. Let's make, let's put it around there. Even we made it 18 plus and we made college, as you said, we made college students who had two shots and may have had COVID already and probably did at a point in time, whether they knew it or not, whether it, it floored them or not. And, and we were, we, we were making them like race and we didn't do that with the vaccines last year at this time, as much as supply was a problem, as much as there was some confusion and, and great companies like vaccine hunters stepped up um, last spring at this time, there was a lot more of a decided order this Christmas. We kind of end with Omicron. We kind of made everybody panic. And that's why that's why you had, I think, vulnerable people, 55 and over. And you've seen the Ontario numbers. Uh, they need to be better. They, they need to be better. Our 50 to 60. We've still got a third of that population in the province uh, not getting a third shot. And those are some of the people that, that are more at risk than people 30 years younger. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think, once again, I, I would like to see us learn from our experience and, uh, you know, and just ask ourselves, what can, how, 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 how can we do this better? Like when the future waves happen and so forth, whether that's bringing the vaccine to the at-risk populations, whether that's educational campaigns, whether that's, you know, use some, some uh, innovation here to really emphasize that, you know, how we can um, really reduce the risk of our vulnerable populations. Like, you know, like for me, I often talk about the solid organ uh, recipients because that's we, we saw a lot of that in this fifth wave. Like I would mail, like I'm just, just you know, I don't, in terms of practicality, I'm not 100% sure, but like I would mail rapid antigen tests to their house. I would have the, mm-hmm. a one, like one phone number or one e- email address or a site that they could book their monoclonal antibody treatment or their Paxlovid, their oral uh um, uh, antiviral, like make it as simple and easy as possible for our, our, our highest risk patients so that we can protect the hospitals because those treatments work in terms of reducing uh, hospitalizations. And like I said, COVID unfortunately is not going to go anywhere. We're going to have future waves and we need a sustainable approach. You know what I'm saying? Dr. Quattro Kiramanting, our guest on Toronto today. I, I agree with all that. And I think the reason like I was looking forward to chatting with you is, um, you know, I, I'm I have no time right now. Maybe I'll enjoy it again someday. I love I love politics. I was a poli sci major before I went into sports, but I got I got no time for it right now. I got no time for partisan politics <laughs> because we've had a health crisis and emergency. We, we haven't even been able to properly grieve what this has all done to us for 24 months so when i hear okay the lifting of the mask well it's politics and it's politics and i see 50 states right now all 50 tons of different democrats my god there's nothing in common with uh kathy hochel in new york and Ron DeSantis in florida but neither of those states have mask mandates right now indoors and we've got western european democracies that that are uh going forward with it and and I know you know this. There's many Nordic countries that never put a mask, never put a mask on somebody under 12. So when you have to wear one for work or if I had to wear one for three, four hours at a time, that's fine. That's I agree. Then people say, well, the mask, it's the it's the it's the least you can do. 
But to me, not on a five-year-old for 35 hours a week for two years. It's one thing to ask somebody to do anything possible to save lives for two months. Well, we've done them for 24 months now. So I I just I don't get the politics of it. And if if people are going to make that criticism that, well, that you know, the Ontario government's doing this, then give us metrics as to when you think it can start. And that's the one thing I haven't heard in three weeks since this announcement. Where do you need hospitalizations to be at? Where do you need ICUs like yours uh, to be at? And I don't get those answers. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, like if we're going to go towards a normalcy again, you know, we we have to make the plunge at some point. And if we're not feeling that this is the time, when will be the time? What is the exact metric that we're looking for? What is the, is it hospitalizations? It can't be cases. I'm sorry. Like it has to be something more, uh, you know, solid, but it like, what it what what is what's it going to take? And I think a lot of this is you know politics comes to play, but it's also fear. Like we've done so much fear messaging throughout this pandemic, and don't get me wrong. Like I have, I live the fear. Like this is one thing that you know. There's a lot of you get a lot of pushback from, you know, especially in Twitter sphere. But I want to emphasize, like I was there for our very first COVID patient coming through our doors. Okay, in the ICU, we were scared. We were petrified. Like, I mean, am I going to get COVID? I'm going to bring it home. Um, is this patient going to do okay? Is is Are we going to get over, overwhelmed like we saw in in Italy or in, in New York? And, and and so you, like, I've lived this. I mm-hmm. come home and I'm worried, like, uh, I'm going to, you know, shower the first thing I come home. Do I leave my clothes out in the, in the garage? I've lived this. And I've seen what, you know, once again, that COVID does discriminate, you know, and we don't all have an equal risk. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is that, you know, we, we have to at some point move on. We have to be able to get back to where we were because what we were as humans, we were connecting, we were, we were, you know, living life like we, what it's meant to be, you know, like uh, being human beings. And we've taken that away from so many people for two years. And we're in a spot where we've never, we've, we've never been in such a good spot where we've had vaccines available where we have therapeutics such as monoclonal antibodies available we have hybrid immunity because so many people have had been exposed to omicron and you know we have that ability to protect ourselves too like listen if you are you you're worried about contracting covid and you still want to wear a mask do it absolutely protect yourself that's what we do we you know it's personal protective equipment we that's how we protect ourselves but we need at some point to be connected again, to, to re to be, uh, you know, to, to recover. And there's been so much damage. And I'm sure, you know, we've talked about this so many times in terms of our youth, you know, what school closures done, where economy, cancer screening, mental health, physical health, the, the weight gain, like there's so many aspects of, of, of all of this that we need to recover from. But at some point we, we got to make the plunge. We got to move forward. And, uh, you know, I think the time is now. But we told a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year olds, hey, hey, shut up, sit over there, keep sitting over there. It doesn't matter how the metrics, you just keep sitting over there because because people are dying. And well, they are. And well, this is a global tragedy that we're all dealing with. We didn't tell a lot of those kids how low risk they are. We, we didn't we, we're not telling six year olds even without a vaccine and even if even without a vaccine before vaccines you're in the lowest risk demographic imaginable when i send you to school and um and 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 you're and i've got three vaccines and that 6 year old is is at far lower risk 
than I am walking around the streets tomorrow. And it's not even close. Yeah, no, it's, it's, but as, as you said, it's, it's time to, for the kids to recapture their youth. It's time to do it with enthusiasm. It's time to do it with energy and celebrate the, 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 the idea that we are in the best spot we've been throughout this pandemic and just let them have their youth back, man. Like let them, let them be kids again. You know, I'm such a fan of what you do. Um, I'm, I'm not terribly unbiased about it. Uh, but that said, um, you know, next time I'll hit you with harder questions. We'll, we'll talk about the Edmonton Oilers or we'll talk about, you know, yes. like, we'll we'll talk about what's working and not, and not working. Um, and, uh, and, and much, much more, but thank you for your advocacy and for, coming on our show and uh, and doing what you do. I, I hope I get a chance to thank you in person someday. I, I, I mean it. It's, it really matters. I, Greg, this has been an absolute slice. You keep hustling and honestly, go Oilers, number one. <laughs> number two, uh, we'll definitely be able to, I'd love to hook up if we're ever in a T-Dot or if you're in a, a Ottawa area. Uh, but I really appreciated the opportunity. Really enjoy that conversation with Dr. Quadro Kiramanting. So um, this is really, really interesting. It broke to uh, Monday night going into Tuesday. We talked about it a good chunk of the show yesterday. Um, an alliance. It is described as that between uh, the liberal government and the NDP MPs. And uh, to discuss it, we're very pleased to welcome back on the show. We love that he makes time for our audience. He is liberal MP uh, for Beaches East York, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Nathaniel, thank you very much for making the time, getting up early for our audience. We appreciate it. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, no problem. Good, good to join. Um, this is so. This gets described a, a lot of different ways. I know the conservatives are painting this as a quote unquote coalition. The um, liberals are painting it as um, as in essence a a supply uh, organization. Is it is the truth? To be honest, is the truth somewhere in the middle in that in that definition? It's not. No. So listeners should know there are three ways to make a minority government work: a formal coalition where parties share government roles. That's not what this is. A supply agreement where parties agree not to cause an election and agree on key items that where they share priorities and, and to move forward on those priorities. And then an ad hoc negotiation, bill by bill or issue by issue. And we've seen that latter approach in the last parliament and the beginning of this one. And that has led to significant disruption, dysfunction. And so a coalition was never a serious consideration. This is very clearly a supply and confidence agreement. And it's not about... The agreement itself says, I mean, it says it's not about compromising either party's core beliefs or design differences. It's about ensuring that those differences don't stand in the way of delivering on shared goals. And then it lays out seven shared goals. Now, the report was yesterday some NDP MPs may be on committees, but they certainly won't be in cabinet. That's an important distinction to draw, isn't it? NDP MPs are not going to be in cabinet. I think there's going to be a more proactive effort to consult and engage to make sure we're all on the same page and that the shared priorities aren't upended. But there are no formal government roles. This this, this is very clearly not a coalition yeah. for people concerned. But, but people should know that the shared priorities are serious climate action, advancing reconciliation, affordable housing, affordable child care, strengthening our health care system via long-term care standards, via more doctors and nurses and more dollars for provinces, via pharmacare. The, the, the new issue, because all of those issues that I've just mentioned were already promises we made to Canadians and liberals in the last election. The, the new commitment to get this deal done was dental care. That is a new cost. That is a new promise. That is an NDP priority or has been traditionally an NDP priority. And so in the spirit of cooperation, and that's what I would emphasize, 
this deal is about making sure Parliament works via cooperation and collaboration. I, I think that's what my constituents want. I think that's what most Canadians generally want out of their elected officials, not excessive partisanship, but putting our differences aside to get important things done. And and that's the, the hope out of this deal. We'll see how it plays out. But people should know that the of the list of shared priorities, I mean, we're talking about delivering on our promises that we made to Canadians in a serious way, just mm-hmm. making sure that we do it more efficiently and effectively and without the political gamesmanship. And I think it's important to prioritize it, it, a coalition government would be, let's say this June in, in, in the province of Ontario, let's say Doug Ford ends up with 60 seats. Andrea Horvath has 34 with the NDP. Stephen Del Duca has 30 for the Liberals. If the NDP and Liberals decided to, to cross in and could form a government, that's a true coalition. It happened with David Peterson and Bob Ray when I was exactly. in elementary school. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, and and uh, no serious commentator is suggesting this is a coalition. What you do see is you see conservatives, not all conservatives, I would say, but you see certain conservatives that are overplaying their hand as, as is occasionally their want. And I would say that the excessive partisan response we've seen from those conservatives is actually a testament to why the supply agreement is necessary in the first place. We We don't want that kind of political gamesmanship and partnership to get in the way of getting things done. And to date, mm. my experience, I haven't done this forever, but over six years, I have seen that, especially in the last minority session and the beginnings of this one. So I'm actually really optimistic that this is a way of putting some differences aside and, and, and getting things done much more quickly. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. What I love about about politics, and I always have, is you've got 160 uh, seats, uh, actually 159 now, uh, in the Liberal Party that sit in the House of Commons. And not everyone can have the same exact goals. You share ideology, you share perspective, you share debate. So I'd ask, uh, out of those 159, did some have a lot more uh, oomph in terms of wanting uh, more dental care, wanting the idea of pharmacare? Were these things, because some people might say, if it was such a good idea and you believe it in now, wh- why didn't the Liberal Party make it um, an election platform back in the fall? Yeah, so pharmacare is a good example where we have made it a platform promise previously. Certainly in since 2015, we've committed to it. We've done work towards it. Slowly, more slowly, probably than some would like, but but there has been work towards it. This will make sure that it is a priority that is continued and and that that work continues in a serious way. There are certainly liberal colleagues of mine who have argued for and fought for dental care. It's never been a promise in our platform. People should know when we're thinking about dental care in this way, the promise, the shared priority now is one that will be very much targeted at low and middle income households. So it will be basic dental care for households with an income below $90,000. And so that is something that has already been costed by the PBO in rough terms. And there was a way for the finance minister, I think, to make it work. So it's important, I think, not everyone may, but I certainly think when you're looking at getting a deal done like this, we set out our priorities that we want to get done. Look, we're going to move forward with other things, possibly increased military spending that the NDP may not support. This isn't to say everything we do is going to have the NDP support going forward. Mm. But it is to say, let's hammer out seven items where we all agree. And when it came to better health care and getting this deal done, if we're, if we're going to collaborate, we're going to cooperate. And there's an NDP priority that we also share. You know, it's not something we promise, but we, we share uh, mm. our support for Then Then let's get it done. I can't tell you this, but I'm assuming you know the date in your mind um, wh- when you would have gone to bed at night and thought this deal is happening because it isn't Monday night. You you know, and, and the Liberals and NDP did a great job keeping this tight as a drum. It didn't leak out, but but this this was being worked on for weeks in advance, correct? 
I did not know until Monday that the deal had been formalized, but I certainly was aware that conversations had been ongoing for, for months. And so, as they should be. I mean, we want cooperation. I certainly want cooperation. I was immediately after the election encouraging that kind of cooperation and saying, you know, one of the reasons we saw this election in last fall was because of dysfunction, a lack of an ability to get things done, bills that were stalled in, in Parliament. And people can have different views about why that was. And, and look, I would say everyone, every party was probably culpable in, in different ways for that, that kind of delay. This cuts through all that. And so uh, having been there right after the election saying we should get this done, we should do this kind of you know, cooperative work, uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the deal was formalized. You're credited with being an MP that uh, is, uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean it, this in a negative way, this word, uh, conciliatory, uh, but you, you, you are known for being able to reach across the aisle, keep things civil, have, you know, genuine debate. Um, and you've talked about that tone and, and the, uh, the, the, the room temperature. Um, and Joel Lightbound, Joel Lightbound obviously came out and, and talked about that and said, we've got to be positive. And, and a lot of that was deemed to be about COVID and vaccine mandates at the time, especially at the heat of everything that was happening in Ottawa. But can an agreement like this take down that temperature to some extent? I, you know, early days, there's still a lot of rhetoric coming from the conservatives about what this deal is and what it isn't. But can this improve the tone and the conversation and debate in the House of Commons? Or do you worry it's it's past that? I hope it will improve the debate, if only because it doesn't allow for the same kind of stalling and the same kind of parliamentary tactics we sometimes see. But look, you're going to see major opposition from conservatives, and you've already seen, I, I would say, aggressive and over-the-top rhetoric about what this is and, and when it's clearly not that. And so you're going to continue to see that. I recognize this continues to be politics, and that's the nature of it. I, at the same time, I do think it's important we we find agreements with conservatives even where we can. And I'll give you one example. In the last parliament, Matt Genereau, a colleague of mine from Edmonton, is a conservative colleague. He had a bill, a private member's bill, to add five days of bereavement leave where someone had lost a family member. They were currently getting five days from work paid, and now they're getting 10. That bill passed. Why did it pass? In part because I had a private member's bill slot, and I didn't need to use it at the time because the government had adopted a bill that I'd introduced. And so I had a free slot. And should I have objected to sharing that slot with Matt simply because he was a conservative? No. Or should I have looked at the idea itself and said, I'm going to cooperate with Matt, give him my slot. I gave him my slot twice, actually, to make sure that bill became law. Private members bills rarely become law. And so I think we have to get past this idea that simply because someone is coming forward with an idea and they're a conservative, we're going to object to it because we're liberals or or vice versa. So I do hope that this, you know, this addresses some of the polarization. The prime minister has spoken about that. And, and, and more than anything, I hope this just means we can focus on the work and, and we can yeah. focus on the ideas and not the politics. Speaking of the work, uh, one of your colleagues who's the health minister, uh, Minister Duclos, referenced it yesterday that there isn't a date set uh, to lift COVID-19 vaccine mandates that are federally, you know, living here. Many of those mandates have been lifted provincially. I, I know it's so if he can't give a date, no one can, I suppose. But it feels like the train's moving in in that direction. If we keep metrics low, if we you know continue to have a vaccination rate creep up, there's not a timeline per se. But I think for your constituents, for constituents everywhere in, in Ontario, at minimum, they are wondering when that would be the case. It's fair to wonder. It's fair to ask. I certainly get those questions from constituents. I've made the case to the health minister and my colleagues that 
we should reevaluate in keeping with Dr. Tam's own comments. We should reevaluate mandates in accordance with the evidence, and we should do so in a really public and transparent manner so that it's clear to Canadians, maybe not the timeline, but that this work is underway. And we have reevaluated the travel rules such that mm-hmm. the testing rules have now been dropped for vaccinated travelers. That's important. We have, I know there's an active review. I think it's public now that there's an active review around the vaccine mandate for the civil service. And so that work is underway and being reevaluated. My own view is that we should probably, you know, for travel in particular, but we, a three dose mandate with accommodations for rapid testing could be an alternative solution so that everyone is accommodated. And I think that, I think we, we increasingly have to get to that idea of, accommodation and making sure that we're using all of the tools. Vaccines are one tool. They're an incredibly important tool. They're the most important tool. But I think we've underused other tools like rapid testing. So as we move away from mandates, particularly around travel, which may be challenging to do in the immediate term, accommodating individuals so they can travel throughout our country uh, and they can and they can see a family around the country and, and we accommodate for reasons of fairness, and, mm-hmm. and we know that rapid testing can also prevent, uh, you know, is 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 important to identify infectiousness. And so, I think there are other other ways of looking at it. But look, in the end, we'll see what the evidence comes back and the advice comes back from Dr. Tam and her team, and and we'll we'll, we'll follow that in an evidence informed way. And and the travel is a two way street, isn't it? The United States right now is asking for more testing than Canada is as of April first, and their border was closed off to Canadians and and that continued after Canada opened their border to America. So if people are saying, well, what about this? What about that? It's a little bit like the trucker argument. It's a little bit like that saying the United States is asking exactly what the Canadian government's asking in terms of a vaccine mandate at the time. It's more challenging at the federal level for that reason, where Mm -hmm. the province can change its own internal rules. We, We can do that, obviously, for the civil service. And that's why that review is underway. But as it relates to international travel, certainly there are greater complications in terms of setting rules that ultimately do need to be better harmonized with other countries. Uh, in terms of domestic travel, though, we could more in a more straightforward way say very quickly, I think, that we would accommodate people who have not been vaccinated via rapid testing. And, and we could get to a place where it takes some of the heat out of the and the frustration out of the situation. For yeah. many, especially since the mandates are effective. They've worked. I, I, su- I supported the mandates. Uh, because they've increased vaccination rates to a significant degree. Now, we we don't have a really high rate of third doses, unfortunately, in this country just yet. We do have to drive those up. People should get their third dose if they haven't. We know that third doses are important. So there's a conversation there, too, about do we amend the mandates to yeah. drop them entirely? Do we amend them to extend them to three doses, but also accommodate people who are unvaccinated because they, they haven't even gotten their second dose or first dose? Do we accommodate them via rapid testing to ensure that they're able to travel domestically at a minimum? I, I think there are fair way, you know, there are a number of fair ways of looking at this conversation. Got you loud and clear. Thanks very much for making the time uh, with us this morning, Nathaniel. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having Nathaniel me. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, Liberal MP. Um, today, I guess, is day three of the mask mandate lifting. A lot of restrictions are, are different uh, than they were. But I've often heard people say Ontario's just we're, we're different than any other province. We're different than um, 
you know, any of the states. We're different from a lot of Western European countries. Some of that's masks, some of that's kids, some of that's restrictions. Uh, to discuss it with me, I, I like his opinions. I don't agree with all of them. I He doesn't agree with all of mine. Uh, when we've talked about mandates and things before, uh, Alex Brown joins me now on 640 Toronto. When I talk about Ontario and, and where it is, and, and we're trying to strike the balance on, on this show, um, trying to avoid too much doomsday perspective when concern is real, when numbers go up, when things are, are rattling, we talk about them. Um, but Ontario is a little different, isn't it? It's, it's hard to describe. And I, I think personally, I can just say from getting to know you a bit, I think you've struck the balance really well. I mean, I know we'd rather be talking about Matt Chapman right now. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's bigger things in the world. Um, I have uh, American pollster friends who occasionally just ask me, what is going on in Ontario? What, what makes you guys so unique? And Whereas if you look at other provinces, say Quebec, there is this cultural identity that sort of muddies the waters. And for an Anglophone like me, I just I don't, don't think I'll ever understand it as much as I can study it. Ontario, at the best of times, is beholden to quite a few special interest groups, is, is heavy on the influence of larger teachers unions, media unions. We are an academic hub. We are a media hub. Um, we are in some ways, and I, I, I hope you don't take this personally, a bit of a swamp when it comes to, you know, where the chattering class coalesces. Yeah. And we've got, we've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen and we have a lot of um, sort of non-working class professionals, these sort of Zoom class. And so we have lots of academics and, and folks who are great at opining about what's going on in the rest of the country. But the reality is, is they're, they're in their den right now, same as I am. And we were, I believe, always sort of set up to suffer a little bit for that, where we were going to um, protect one subsection of society over understanding the, the plights of some of the working class and multi-generational households and the manufacturing sector. And we are going to do it to protect some of the sensibilities and some of the special interests that run our schools and run our media unions and and put on our talk shows. Like if I'm when I think about, yeah, yeah, the GTA, Toronto, Toronto specific, um, there's a lot of people that were able there's a high percentage. Um, and if we put a spotlight on every city across the country, there's areas where you farm a lot. And you can't stay inside and you've got to get your goods out. If you live in a fishing village in Nova Scotia, a fishing town, same thing. Um, and and there's just people that are out there. And though we, you know, we have warehouses here and we have essential workplaces and we have people that that do that. Um, yes, the quote unquote laptop class. Um, this is this is a lot of the reason why people who don't live maybe anywhere else except Vancouver, they don't just look at and and kind of sneer at us sneering because well, you know, we get all the great concerts or we have more sports teams or they hate the Leafs. They look at us because sometimes Toronto tries to tell everybody else what to do. And it's 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 maybe like a sixth of the entire country. But we think we've got sort of a moral authority over the other five, six sometimes. And we think we have a moral authority over the last two years of the pandemic, too, which has been really interesting, where there have often been times where I think to the chagrin of parents and business owners and younger-ish guys like myself, you're, you're looking around going like, why is Toronto pretending it's Wuhan right now? 
Uh, we are a large city in North America, and there are Western countries and Scandinavian progressive countries doing things very different than we are. But why are we so much more negative? And I really do believe that comes back to we have a different culture and the sort of ingrained special interest influence, which sort of permeates through the messaging. And you have to handle you have to handle things a little bit different. If you're a, a conservative premier or a liberal premier, you have a lot of mouths to feed and a lot of groups to keep happy that uh, don't mind striking, you know, once or twice mm-hmm. a year during the best of times. Alex Brown's our guest on 640 Toronto and Toronto today. Uh, I got a long list of things I wish um, Doug Ford had had done differently. The worst of the pandemic is obviously, uh, you know, people that work in the military, men and women carrying bodies out of long-term care homes. It felt like endlessly. It probably was only a week and a half, but I, I will never... I know we, we've got images all over our television uh, from Ukraine that are, are unspeakably awful, but this was our low point of the pandemic. And uh, and I think about that a lot. And I think about, you know, my dad starting to lose his memory and and I meet and my and my mom having to tell him a few times a day in April and May last year when the weather finally got good. They both had two vaccine shots. You can't golf yet. Why? Well, um, mobility. So I got a long, I got a long time. I got a lot of energy for complaining about that. What I, what I worry about now, and I never thought it would get here, but I started to worry about in December. And Alex, it's honestly probably worse than it is as as it's almost the, you know, right out of the dark night, right out of Christopher Nolan's a dark night where there's, there's people rooting for chaos. There are agents of chaos. They don't want schools to go well. They wouldn't mind if there were more people in hospital. I hate feeling like that, but politics is politics. There were people that didn't want the vaccine rolled out at the end of 2020 because it might have got Donald Trump reelected. I was probably one of those people. I'm like, let's hold off on this for a couple months. So we've all got our, our crosses to bear. When when I say that, do you see that manifesting itself out there with people just thinking they're almost fingers crossed going, well, my household's fine, but hope it doesn't go well for the rest of you. That's that's hard to stomach. I do. And I think it's really unfortunate. I, I uh, sort of one of my early sort of come to Jesus moments with 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 COVID was was noticing on a on a beautiful spring day that the messaging just didn't totally match up with the sort of behavioral psychology you're seeing from the messaging from government. It was one of those classic Doug Ford press conferences where he walks out there like he has water in his shoes and you're going like, wait a second, at the time, like the ICU metrics are good. Uh, and you're giving me this like really heavy version of like, well, folks, uh, boy, it's going to be a rough couple months. And this was around the time when they closed golf courses. And you're going like, what on earth are you talking about? And I think we have seen, unfortunately, that the way that government and media have worked to, you know, tell us, you know, important safety information that, you know, that strategy has worked too well for too many people. And it is time to start bringing them back into the light where it's okay to be worried and it's okay to um, to to have concerns about you know say long COVID or or variants, but there is also an element of there is a smaller percentage of the of society, but a vocal percentage that have been almost radicalized and in a way that is not dissimilar to you know like the hardcore anti-vaxxers. You have folks who you know we're a year removed from the deployment of a mass vaccination campaign. Yeah. And they're still saying no masks off in the spring, you know, a year later, uh, your brain's going to melt. If you even let your kid go into the classroom, they're practically breathing secondhand smoke. You've got 
certain Ontario physicians drawing children's skeletons on Twitter. And just, we are, we are so beyond uh, uh, helpful there. That, that does not serve anyone. You are just making people scared. You are just feeding hypochondria. And um, we are seeing the ramifications of industrial scale behavioral psychology to get people to comply to a threat. But now as that threat subsides and wonderfully so, thanks to treatments and vaccines, we need to start winning some folks back and, and being positive and, and reaching them with moderate voices because the voices on the margins will never admit they were wrong. Yeah. They won't, they've, they've profited off this. They've had great engagement rates. I don't care if my follower list disappears tomorrow. I just want kids to, you know, have normal sporting events and have grads this year. And, and surely it's time to start sort of um, acting with a little bit more compassion and humanity. I, I don't get it for a few of them. I don't get the win of perpetual. Like I, like I don't get it. Is it, is it, is there a book coming? Is there, is there a speaker's tour? Is there a, a huge speaker fee for, an epidemiologist to be out there on, on tour. Like he's uh, Billy talent. I, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know what Billy talent tickets are, but I don't, I don't like, I can't, I'm trying to figure out how does it benefit anybody to make parents think an eight year old, a perfectly healthy eight year old is an unvaccinated eight year old is infinitely more susceptible to a bad COVID outcome than you and I being fully, but being triple vaccinated. They're not. They never have been. They never could be. We're lucky. That's just how it worked out. We should be really thankful that they're in by far the most infinitesimal, you know, uh, demographic for harm. And and stuff is going to happen. It does happen. It will happen. Life will happen. But I, I don't get the win of, of not assuring parents that, you know, your kids are the safest people out there. We got to get your grandpa boosted. And that age stratification of risk has, has helped luckily the entire time, right? Like when in the yeah. early days of COVID, when we were all terrified and you go to the park and people are walking around in N95s and they were hard to get back then. Uh, in the weeks to follow, thankfully, like there were sort of data literate folks being like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, like this is this is really scary. But like if you're under X amount of age, like you're not going to drop down in the streets for like those somewhat dubious cell phone videos from China that would leak out. And it's um, it's hard to believe what are what are folks getting out of that? I mean, we all like attention, and we all, I mean, in often is the case. Some of these are are sort of academics who are non-practicing uh, physicians, and you know, it's great for the speakers' tour. And maybe the book is coming. Uh, the concert halls would probably be very socially distanced and not a whole lot of fun to attend. But um, yeah, surely it's time to sort of rewire some of the some of the thinking here. Do you think we're headed that way? I want to end on that. Do you think we're headed that way? We're headed towards spring. More people will be outside. See, this again is a problem. We're going to have an election probably in the midst of when people are starting to feel really good about themselves. And I'm sorry for if, you know, I saw a recent polling that is very pro for the Ford government. And to me, a majority last summer, uh, once we opened everything back up, was an unthinkable prospect to me. But uh, I don't know how the opposition party can like, I just think the government's going to look at the opposition party leaders and say, Hey, we did what we could. We do have a, we do. Ontario has a very, very good uh, rate of keeping people alive compared to other provinces. And yeah, a lot of other States, but I think Doug Ford can point to the other two main combatants and say, they would have locked you down harder. And I don't know how they'll though. And I don't know. I don't know what the evidence is for the two to fire back and go, no, we said this should have been open when it was closed. I don't have any documentation of that. He has them. He has them dead to rights on that. 
Um, there's no way around it. Just a couple of weeks ago, Stephen Del Duca was pushing for a mandated booster dose, even in the Omicron era. For 12-year-olds, 12 to, for and high for school kids. Olds. And, and we're talking folks who had just been infected too when most of our public health agencies say like, hey, did you just have COVID? Like wait on the booster too. So they were, you have a guy effectively campaigning who just wanted to ban half of the province from retail, even the LCBO, strangely enough. So they were, you know, universities, alcohol. right? If you're, you, you've yeah. got two shots and you recovered from COVID and we're, and we, and we, and we still want to pay to send our kid to university next year. I'm just speaking hypothetically, but you want a third shot. Plus they've had COVID and they're paying full freight. And oh, by the way, some of the classes still might be virtual. That doesn't sound great to parents who've waited their whole life for their kid to pick a university and, and their kid to experience that. It's, it's yeah. awful. And oh, by the way, those two shots totally work. Those two shots totally work, but you're banned from society because we just decided it's three. Mixed messaging galore. And oh, by the way, once you have the third shot, that mask is not coming off. And so what are we, um, if, I said this last time I was on, I said, I don't want to vote for Doug Ford. I know a lot of friends who don't want to, but like they have them on this. Whereas unless our opposition parties stop log rolling for certain unions and stop playing to the Zoom class, they're going to get massacred. And you're going to have a lot of people quiet, quiet conservatives in the ballot box, hold their nose and vote for Doug Ford, who never would have thought about it before because they just want their kid to have a normal summer at camp. They want them to come back, have a great first year of high school or university and not have to worry about this variable of like, is there going to be this new booster mandate? And actually, to be honest, like I noticed it last week, Peter Uni um, in one of his last acts kind of shrugged his shoulders about hospitalizations going up. I mean, he said, maybe not the same thing as, as how Isaac Bogosh was. I thought that was measured. Eh, I wouldn't do it right now, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to whack us out. It's not going to, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to destroy the very fabric of our province and we won't catch fire again. And so you got Peter Uni, Teresa Tam, Eileen Davila. <laughs> like there's a lot of, 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 of the heroes of the first 23 months in terms of, no, you can't do that. Uh, it's way too dangerous. And now suddenly they're what are they bought and paid for? They're they're political operatives. They're uh, they're, they're government rubes. <laughs> it's, our, it's so obvious. Our CMOH, Kieran Moore, was like everybody's hero in Kingston for the first year, and now you have certain U of T academics like wishing eternal damnation on him. And he too is 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 speaking sort of from the same tone, where it's like, oh look, I get it. It's still a threat, but we're in a position now where we don't think we're going to get swamped. Mm. This is a good thing. Please, you know, go out there, get, you know, get vaccinated. We, you know, we're really trying to put this apparatus, testing apparatus together for you. And we've got early treatments. And I do think the province could do a much better job with getting early treatments out to, to those at risk. But these are the one-time heroes. And it's making those who are, who are desperately hanging on to the negative narrative seem more and more absurd when they're, they're you know, their idols are, they're not changing. Like they're 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 evolving with the data. They're evolving with the science. I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. And those who are who are still sort of set in their ways, it's golly. When the music stops, it's it's starting to look really obvious. And there aren't too many chairs left. No. And to to now to really finish, why not wish for current damnation? Because then you got a bigger news story, and you you're saving lives instantaneously. Absolutely. Eternal right. damnation. If it happens in 25, 30 years, the, the damage is like wish for current damnation. And then I think we'd cover that with cameras, a live feed. I, I would, I would lead with it. Um, yeah. If somebody just exploded into flames, regardless of their 
their their status as a physician. We got a story because someone else hey, wished it. We got a story it, on our hands. If it bleeds, it leads. And uh, <laughs> well, that's been be, obvious the last twenty five months. Trust me. It would take it would take COVID out of the news for a hot minute, which uh, <laughs> means always a good thing. So we can talk about the Blue Jays and we can talk <laughs> about the Maple Leafs deadline moves and we can just be you know pretty psyched about you know this this you know what looks like a pretty great Ontario spring. All right, Alex Brown on six forty Toronto. Well, we'll just have to agree to disagree on all of that. Um, <laughs> Thanks very much for making the time for our audience. I, I, I enjoy our conversations. I learned something. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Craig. Alex Brown joining us. Um, so this new study is telling us things that many people were saying and, and maybe saying early days about the pandemic and about health outcomes. But it is fascinating. The headline, moderate physical activity can protect against severe COVID-19 illness. Now, that's a, not a you know catch-all, but that's in the majority of cases. It's a fascinating study from uh, researchers in South Africa, along with researchers at our own Western University. I am a proud alumnus. And I say alumnus, not alumni, because I went to Western um, when it was UWO. I'm very pleased to welcome on former Olympian and former world rowing champion. She was a member of Canada's national rowing team for a decade. She is Dr. Jane Thornton. Dr. Jane, it's great to have you back on the show. I think the last time we talked was right before the Tokyo Olympics. I really do. And now we've had two Olympics and eight months and this amazing study. Uh, It's great to have you back. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be back. Has your, I'm, I'm sure you uh, were uh, a willing witness to all the uh, all the activity of our athletes in China. It's t- it's tough to get the body clock back to normal after. I mean, you went to Beijing for the Olympics in 2008, and I'm sure it was about a yeah. month later. You're like, I think I sleep normally now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's pretty amazing to see what they've been able to accomplish, and I, I remember seeing a lot of those fights uh, in the Summer Games. But uh, it really, really proud of the athletes performances and a very challenging year well and hard right we talked right before tokyo with the summer olympics you were a summer olympian and you talked about even in beijing in 2008 there's the crowd and there's the energy and there's that roar and pulse in the olympic village and right. yeah what our athletes had to do in tokyo like hopefully never another like uh tokyo and and beijing when we go to paris uh three summers from now hopefully two summers from now hopefully it's a lot more normal Exactly. I completely agree that it's so wonderful being able to have the crowd supporting you. And I know that they were still able to pull out incredible performances, even without those crowds and and everything like that. But there really is nothing like it. So I I completely agree. I hope it's changing for the next Olympics. So you were an elite athlete at the highest level, but this study talks about just having moderate levels of physical activity protecting against severe outcomes. Like I said, it's not it's not 100 out of 100, but it dictates a trend that a lot of people have been talking about throughout the pandemic. Were, were the results, in essence, predictable or maybe even more pronounced in terms of being pro-physical activity than you might have thought when the research started? Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. So I think as a, I mean, I was a sedentary teenager and eventually got into sport and physical activity. And I think that's where I started becoming passionate about this. And, you know, of course, as an Olympian, you have a certain angle to physical activity. But what was really surprising to me as a physical activity researcher with this study was that we don't really have to be exercising, uh, you know, hours per day or even an hour a day to be able to achieve benefits for people that have contracted COVID-19. This was a massive study out of South Africa. We were really privileged to be able to collaborate with researchers there and have a look at data um, basically collected for people that had contracted COVID-19, being able to look prospectively, meaning track them to see what kind of outcomes. 
So we, the, I mean, the bottom line is essentially people, even if you are just working out one hour a week, so physically active just one hour a week, that's enough to confer some really good protective benefits, even if you've contracted COVID-19. And we're not talking a small, this is no proverbial small sample size, 65,000 right. patients, uh, Dr. Thornton, and over a 15-month span. So it, it ran from original COVID when we're all panicked, and we had a right to be panicked in March of 2020, to more, mm-hmm. to more of us learning to live with it, more post-vaccination studies around the summer of last year. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the take-home messages for me, at least, especially as we look internationally at different countries, when we have these lockdowns, a lot of countries, including our own, we're shutting down national parks, we're shutting down trails, we're shutting down chances to be physically active outside. And I think this is one of those key studies, along with others that have affirmed uh, what we've been able to find as well, that we really need to think about when pandemics hit, when even though there's communicable disease that actually prioritizing physical activity in outdoor spaces is one of the best things that we can do. So uh, we would look at, for example, people engaging in over 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week. So to break that down, that's uh, basically half an hour a day of moderate intensity, like a brisk walk, something that's raising your heart rate, even just a little bit, you're still able to maintain a conversation with somebody beside you. That in and of itself has decreased the relative risk of having uh, experiencing outcomes like hospitalization, ICU admission, ventilation, and death by numbers approaching 30 to 40 percent. So this is this is huge. And and again, the moderate, even though that uh, even people engaging in 60 minutes per week, so that one hour per week, or or more still have a relative decrease in about 20 to 25%. And so I think when we look at those numbers and think about all of the other things that we've put into place, which of course are absolutely necessary, but things like hand hygiene, Mm -hmm. like personal protective equipment and so on. But if we put this other aspect of physical activity into our toolkit, I think we can accomplish um, major things and and something to to learn if for another variant or another pandemic. Dr. Jane Thornton, our guest, she's a research chair in injury prevention and physical activity for health and a sport medicine physician at Western University. And we're talking about a joint study between Western and a a South African university about fitness, about physical activity and how it added an extra layer of protection against severe COVID-19 outcomes. When you bring that up, I I think constantly and I'm not going to politicize our discussion, but last April and May, we closed a lot of outdoor activity, right? We didn't. We closed golf mm-hmm. courses after they were open, tennis courts, a pickleball for older people, and I thought so much about that. I'm like, hey, we look, we're in a bad spot. We were, and and we we should obviously have t- conversations about closing restaurants and movie theaters and, and indoor gathering places, all that stuff. Okay, but but I thought a lot about that, and I thought about kids mm-hmm. getting outside and playing sports, Doctor Thornton, and I really thought about seniors. Like the the the, the line sort of was like. Well, just go for a walk, and I'm like, it's 33 out with a humidex. Like, like that's not yes. that's not practical for people living in a hot, sweltering apartment building who might be widows or older people. Like, we really, we I wish we could go back in time and and reverse those five weeks because I'm not sure it did anything but harm us. Yeah, and I mean it's hard to tell, and obviously, like hindsight, as they say, is 2020. But uh, we were protective. We were trying to figure out how this virus was being transmitted, and. Uh, I do think a lot about the mental health, the patients that we saw that had that uncertainty about whether or not even their sports would continue, uh, mental health of elite athletes, but also recreational athletes of even have that social 
contact and a safe environment being outdoors and things like that. So I think as we learn to do better, uh, that we can do better if, uh, if new, uh, new variants, as I said, or if things, if rates increase again, that to really try to ensure that we maintain uh, a physically active lifestyle and also access to physical activity. Again, thinking about when high-rise apartments in Toronto were shut down and access to playgrounds was shut down for mm-hmm. kids, all of those kinds of things. We're talking social supports, mental health, and physical health. So uh, this is one of those studies. And again, it's not the only one, but certainly a number of studies coming out saying that this is really something we have to prioritize, not just from a health perspective, but from public policy. I think when you and I talked in the summer, we had talked about sort of that that lagging impact of a lot of sitting around being sedentary, as you describe. And and well, our your parents and my parents would have been like, come on, stop watching TV, get outside, do this, do that. They did that. We've had a tougher time being able to do it either through, you know, brutal winters, gyms being closed, indoor sports being off limits like we've got we got catching up to do. And whether we're parents or whether we're whether we're university students where, as you know, you can just sit in your dorm room. Uh, hang out and party and drink beer and all it, like like we got work to catch up on don't we with younger people let alone older people we do and i think one of the interesting things though is that as novel technologies emerge we're all now used to zoom and uh, online seminars and things like that but one of the nice things about that even just looking at physical activity the youtube videos and other resources online um, different fitness apps Hopefully for people that might be stuck in a place where they can't get outside, they do potentially, hopefully, have uh, access to other different kinds of technologies to be a little bit more creative with being active. Um, But I agree with you, uh, by far the best thing that we can do for our health is to be able to get outside in nature. That alone will already decrease our blood pressure, stress hormones, even if we're not being physically active. So if we can combine the two, great. And this is where I think, again, from the perspective of making sure that access is, a, a, is there for people who don't have, uh, you know, easy access to parks and things like that. This is, um, this is a great opportunity to rethink uh, access to, to parks and making sure that more people can get outside and have access to physical activity. Yeah, have to have that approach. We have to. And, and this, this research absolutely fully backs it up. It's, it's phenomenal research, Dr. Thornton. Thanks so much. It's great to catch up with you again. Thanks for spending time with our audience. Thanks so much, Greg. Have a great day. You bet. Dr. Jane Thornton, a sports medicine physician at Western University. She worked on this study. Hey, thanks for checking out Toronto today. We really appreciate it. Back with a live show tomorrow, which you can hear on 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app or right back here where you found our podcast with the best of the show as we'll jam all the good to great to pretty decent stuff together at the same time. Thanks for listening.